0: Welcome to New Books in Biography. I'm Elaine Eaton. Famed as a writer, hostess, and a patron of the arts, the one thing Mabel Dodge-Luhan was not known for was her experience with venereal disease. However, that is precisely the fascinating tack that biographer Lois Rednick takes in her new book entitled The Suppressed Memoirs of Mabel Dodge-Luhan, Sex, Syphilis, and Psychoanalysis in the Making of Modern American Culture. Hi, Lois. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography today. I wonder if you could just kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: I'd be happy to, o I uh, was a professor of American Studies and English at the University of Massachusetts for 36 years and chaired the American Studies Department for 26 of them, which, which might explain partially the madness that sent me in pursuit of Mabel Dodge-Lewin for over 35 years. Uh, I would say that I had two very distinct lives over the course of my academic career. I've been retired since 2009, living in Santa Fe, but spent my life, 65 years of my life in Boston. Uh, And the one life was being an administrator, teacher, working on pedagogy, curriculum, doing talks on all different kinds of subjects, immigration, American literature. And my other life was when I closed that door every summer and went to New Mexico, Santa Fe 's house, to do research on Mabel Dodge Lujan, who was my uh, thesis topic, and I can talk about why I chose her if you're interested. And I thought that I was writing one book on her and ended up spending a good deal of my life, in fact, most of my academic life, writing about her and her circle of friends, and it's a very broad circle in many different parts of the country and sometimes different parts of the world, that just kept me hooked. Uh, I say it was like peeling an onion that has no core. It just never seemed to end in terms of the amazing adventures that she sent me on in terms of my scholarly research. I've also written about American modernism and many other figures, uh, writers and artists of the Southwest, but she's been my main deal for about 36 years.
0: So this is your third book on her. What first brought her story to your attention and why have you continued to write about her for all this time?
1: Well, I discovered Mabel in a graduate course at Brown University, where I did my uh, doctoral work on American civilization, in an undergraduate course, in a book by Christopher Lash called, it was the first book Christopher Lash wrote, he was a cultural historian, called The New Radicals, the Intellectual as a Social Type, and he had a chapter on Mabel, whom he profoundly disliked, uh, in which he said two things that caught my attention at the moment in my life when I was looking for a dissertation topic. The first was that she was a 20th century pioneer in the cult of the orgasm, and I thought, oh, that sounds more interesting than writing on Emerson or Melville or Moby Dick, even though Moby Dick has some of those implications and that i mean that i say that somewhat humorously but the thing that really most deeply attracted my attention was the way in which he talked about her as a transitional figure between the victorian and modern era because she grew up in a wealthy family up uh, to two, two parents who hated each other and essentially emotionally abandoned her. I call it a kind of upper-class child abuse. There was no physical punishment. There was no touching, no affection, no love. She was reared by a nanny. Uh, Gilded age buffalo, every physical and material thing she could ever want, and empty spiritually and emotionally because of this family. She married early to get out of the house. Her husband died within uh, the first uh, a year, year and a half after they were married, she had already just she had just had a child by him, her only child. His name was, um, her husband's name was Carl Evans. The child was named John. But she was having an affair with a prominent doctor at the same time, went off to Florence after her mother decided that the affair was going to kill her, met her second husband, a Boston architect on the boat. Told him she'd marry him if he took her to Florence and bought her, gave her a life of absolute beauty, which he did. He bought them a village, village, a villa, and uh, they spent a good deal of the ten years they lived there, sort of reconstructing it as uh, a Renaissance domain. Uh, It was her first salon. She left in 1912 and went to New York, and this is the part of the story that most intrigued me because I didn't know a lot about the radicals of Greenwich Village when I studied history in college. And I was amazed to discover figures like Margaret Sanger and Emma Goldman and John Reed, who would become the founder of the Communist Party, and Mabel's lover for the time. She lived in uh, Greenwich Village, and I had no idea that there was a generation of men and women asking all the questions about social justice, equality between the sexes, free possibilities of free love versus monogamy in 1912, 13, 14, and 15, because I'd grown up in the domestic 50s, emerged in the late 60s as a radical and a feminist, and I felt as though in some ways I was finding the origin of my generation and it was blash who put me on to that he didn't write that much about it but i felt i was a similar kind of figure in the sense of growing up in a more conservative restrained and repressed era the mccarthy era and emerging in full flower in young adulthood as someone who was questioning everything about the america that i've been brought up in just the way mabel and her rebel friends did in new york And then he said, said, and then Lash finishes his essay by saying, she went off to Taos and married a Pueblo Indian. I didn't even know what a Pueblo Indian was (laughs) online. I knew it was some kind of Indian. I wasn't even sure where New Mexico was. I knew it was somewhere on one side or the other of Arizona or Texas. (laughs) I went down to um, look at her paper. She donated 1,000 pounds of papers wow. to Yale University in 1952, thanks to her friend Carl Van Vechten, who was um, a leading advocate of African-American culture and a wonderful photographer, who kind of lured a lot of American modernists like O'Keeffe and Stieglitz and Mabel to leave their papers to the Beinecke Library. And um, I was just about to start my work when I learned from the curator that there was another biographer, a real biographer, a grown-up who'd actually, <laughs> not like me, a graduate student, who was, um, had got, had a contract from Harcourt to do a biography of Mabel. And her name was Emily Hahn. Who's, she's best known for having been a prisoner of war in China and writing cookbooks. She was not happy about having to write about Mabel, and, but she was under contract to do it. And I said, well, I'd like to call her. So the curator gave me her phone number, and I remember going into this phone booth, if you can imagine anything <laughs> so quaint, at uh, the Beinecke in the basement and calling up Miss Hahn, who is English. And I said... Um, I'm a graduate student, and I'm doing this research on Mabel Dodge Online, but I hear that you're writing a biography of Mabel, and if it's going to be the definitive biography, I don't want to start this work. And she said, oh, no, my dear. It's going to be a piece of fluff, just like all my other books. You just go on ahead and write your thesis. (laughs) So I did, and I could not believe what I found. I mean, 17 scrapbooks full of the material of the life of her times from Gilded Age Buffalo through the 42 years she lived in town. She landed there in in uh, 1918. You know, thousands of letters from the most interesting people in the arts, radical politics. I just couldn't believe what I discovered. And aside from Lash's essay, there was no biography and when Hans' biography came out it was essentially gossip that she got mostly from Mabel's disgruntled ex-daughter-in-law so I really felt like I had a free field (laughs) and I thank Christopher Lash even though he said she was nothing more than a footnote in Bohemia after spending 40 pages writing about her in a small book (laughs) in which Jane Addams gets a chapter and Randolph Bourne and Walter
0: Littman. Wow so as the title indicates, this, the suppression of Luhan's memoirs is an important part of her story. Can you discuss yes. that a bit?
1: Sure. Um, when I went to, read, to, to look at her papers over the years in which I worked on her, I did one biography that came out in um, 1984 and a biography of her house because so many interesting people owned it, lived there, and so many fascinating people came that re- as a result of Dennis Hopper being there after her and then an educational reformer. So I wrote a biography of sort of all the people who came to, came to that house over the course of about 80 years. But I wasn't, during all that time, allowed to look at several papers that were restricted. And I didn't know why they were restricted. Um, Emily Hahn had had access to these papers. She was at the Beinecke working four months before I showed up in 1973. She was there with a friend of mine from Santa Fe, who was a young doctoral student who was thinking she was going to write her thesis on Mabel, but ended up not finishing her Ph.D. And they came across um, a manuscript called The Statue of Liberty, A Story of Taboos. The story goes from Alan Bradbury, the Santa Fe friend who told me this, that Emily shouted syphilis in the Beinecke (laughs) reading room. And as I'm fond of telling people, having spent 30 years, at least 30 years there, you're not even supposed to breathe irregularly in the Beinecke reading room, and so all heads turned. She called over the curator. He saw that she was reading um, a manuscript about Mabel's uh, th- three of Mabel's four husbands having had syphilis, and he called Mabel's son and said, "Do you want scholars reading this material?" And John Evans said, no, I give you authorization to put under, you know, restriction until the year 2000, when presumably anybody concerned would be dead. Uh, all the papers you think have, a, you know, deal that deal with venereal disease and my mother's sexuality or anything like that. So he did, and I was still able to read a great deal of material, but. And I knew about that Tony had given, Tony Lujan, Mabel's fourth husband, who was a Tiwa Pueblo Indian from Taos, had infected her with syphilis. But it wasn't until the late 90s and, and 2000, when I opened the papers, that I learned more about the three of her, the two other husbands. And then in a very late piece she wrote, she claimed that her first love of the doctor from Buffalo gave her gonorrhea. And Mabel ends. Mabel wrote twenty volumes of memoirs alone, of and she ends the last volume saying, "Is it possible that there could be this much venereal disease in the world?" And I took that question to heart in two thousand. And for seven or eight years, I began to research venereal disease and its impact on Western culture, and I could not believe what I came up with. Its connections to the women's movement, to psychoanalysis, to modern art, to modern literature, and at one point I had a 150-page introduction to this book you read. (laughs) (laughs) Which my editor said, you know, this is really a book in which you are supposed to be writing about Mabel's memoirs, which led you to these discoveries. Mm -hmm. Um, And so she said, cut it down. (laughs) So it's a nice 30 or 40 pages now, much more rational and um, I try to do more, sort of trying to organize, to, do, to write some of the information I wanted to give and that I learned as head notes and introductions to the different sections of the book.
0: Mm-hmm. Which leads right into my next question, because this is not a traditional biography in the sense of being a straight-up linear life. And no. I was trying to think of how to phrase, it's not even that you're curating her memoirs, it's... Nope. it's can, how would you describe the structure? <laughs> I, think
1: I've, I think I've invented a new genre. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I call it in my introduction the syphilis memoir. Uh-huh. I don't know. I, aside from Isaac Dennison, um, I, I also call her out of Africa a syphilis memoir. Mm-hmm. I don't know that there are any other books that fit into this genre that I've discovered or invented. There may be, and I don't know about them yet. This was... I mean, I would preface my comments about the structure of the book with the statement that this is the hardest book I ever had to write in my life, and I've written about and edited about seven or eight books. So the reason it was so difficult is just for the question, because of the the question you asked, it's so, these are disparate memories, that are not continuous over time in any kind of chronological narrative there are huge gaps in chronology between them they were not written while they were written to be published at some time some of them were written to be published at the discretion of a curator some of them most of them were written to be published after her death and unlike her published memoirs which run to four volumes and 1600 pages and came out in the 1930s which I edited down to a felt 250 pages. (laughs) These really didn't go through, as far as I know, any editing except her own. And she had some good people working for her, helping her to edit her published memoirs. So there's a tremendous amount of material that is ill-written or, you know, that just doesn't need to be there, that's not telling a story that I feel is interesting or important to tell. And trying to handle... Trying to structure this material really drove me crazy, (laughs) almost crazy for several years Mm -hmm. until I figured out a way to publish a lot less of it than I originally thought I was going to Mm -hmm. and to provide much more of my own writing and input and explanatory material between the chapters um, in order to provide the context and coherence that a reader would need. Mm
0: It's a really fascinating form. Like I would not have thought to do it that way, but reading it, there's no other way you could do it. it exactly. Makes well, total it took me sense. a very long
1: time to figure that out. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny because when I edited her, I edited her published memoirs. I think it took me a week. You know, she wrote 1,600 pages. I got them down to 250 pages. It was like. Snap! 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 This! 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 No difficulties whatsoever in doing that, and this was a very diff- different kettle of fish. And of course, I'm dealing. I'm also dealing with I, I, so much information that surrounds these memoirs. That is, you know, when I found the cycle in, the, the case notes from her first psychoanalysis. I was just floored by them. I had no idea how to read them. And I fortunately uh, was in touch with a wonderful um, historian of psychiatry at Princeton who had edited a book of case notes and who I corresponded with and who wrote a wonderful introduction in this um, book of case notes that she had done of a very of a kind of ordinary American woman who underwent therapy in 1913, three years before Mabel's first therapy, what were the, what the caveats were, you know, what you could and could not do with case notes. The most intriguing thing about these notes, um, they were written by Smith Eli Jelliff, who was a prominent Freudian analyst in New York City, is that after Mabel published her memoirs and he read them, she, he went back and annotated his case notes, and what one of the most astonishing revelations that um, I discovered was that she used some of the he when he took down what she said, and all we know is what he writes, we can't know what she exactly said, mm-hmm. nevertheless, there are so many phrases that he took down in the case notes that she uses in her published biography, and she didn't see his case notes until after she, he died in 1945. So what that led me to, under, to, to, to sort of comprehend, and it's not a new insight, people who have written about writing a therapy have written about mm-hmm. this, is that she was already constructing her memoirs in therapy mm-hmm. from the time she went into her first therapy. She was constructing the meanings of her life, what happened to her, what was salient, what mattered. Though in the case notes, it's stream of consciousness. You know, it's not like anything follows anything in any particular kind of order. And there are many um, aspects of those case notes that are incredibly suggestive in terms of whether her father had syphilis, in terms of whether she was abused as a child, she certainly was emotionally abused, that I can't, I'll never know because the case notes are so fragmented, Mm. as they always are, because people speak in a stream of consciousness in in Freudian analysis, certainly at that time. Mm.
0: So this is a funny question coming almost 20 minutes in. But who was Mabel Dodge uh,
1: <laughs> very. If I were to give you her full name, Mabel Ganson Evans Dodge Stern Lujan, <laughs> uh, I think I would have to say that she was, in terms of, I don't know that Mabel Dodge Luhan ever found or discovered who it was that she could be. I think that she was a woman who at least fascinates me and has fascinated many of the readers I've heard from because she had such an intense appetite to absorb everything in her environment that was interesting, exciting, innovative, and creative once she got out of the milieu of Renaissance Florence and back into New York and then uh, moved to Taos and started her utopian colony, which she hoped um, would convince her fellow Americans that the Pueblo Indians had the solution to all of the ills of Western life, militarism, imperialism, enemy, and every spiritual decenteredness. So she was a woman who I think spent much of her life trying to find a center, a community, a space, a place where she could be at home emotionally, psychologically, and she could find others of like interest who would would be part of that home with her, a community that she could surround herself with that in some way would make her emotionally whole. And she also, as she says in her memoir about her years in New York, she was a headhunter who often sought out many of the great male writers of her time, D.H. Lawrence being perhaps the most famous to sort of create her because she felt that as a woman, she was capable only of secondary creativity. She was very much convinced that her role in life was to be amused to men of genius. Uh, that was sort of the old-fashioned Victorian Mabel. And then there was the modern Mabel who wanted to be free and do and be anything she wanted to be and was open to new forms of art and new forms of politics and new forms of social life. And those two navels, in some sense, were irreconcilable Uh, her whole life, that she never really found a way until she wrote her memoirs, I would argue, and published her memoirs to sort of speak in her own voice and not wait for some male to recreate her and invent her. Though one has to give her credit for being probably the most borrowed real American woman of any woman in the first half of the 20th century in terms of where she she appears in so much American and European literature as a character and her life is drawn on in poetry and photography and painting and fiction, short stories and novels, uh, numerous, numerous times by some of the leading writers of her time. But she never essentially, I don't think, was able to come to terms with an integrated self Part of that stemmed from the manic depression that um, pursued her for much of her adult life, and that there was no medication and in her day. She died in 1962, which is, I think it was in the early 60s that lithium became available. So she would go through these huge cycles of manic. Uh, you know, ebullience where she would think, I'll create, recreate the world in Florence, I'll bring back the Renaissance or I will, you know, open my door, my salon in New York City to the best radical minds of my generation and they'll make They'll make a whole new world in the United States of social justice and sexual equality and class equality. And then when she went to Taos, I will introduce the greatest minds and thinkers and writers and painters of the world to the Taos Indians, and they will see that this is the way to make a life that's viable, spiritual, non-exploitative of human beings and the environment. That was the manic Mabel, and the depressive Mabel was hell on wheels. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in terms of what could do to people around her and uh, and the destruction that she could sometimes wreak.
0: So I want to pull back a little bit and look at okay. um, venereal disease. So what was the prevalence of venereal disease in general and syphilis in particular at the time? And were there any treatments? Just if you can give us an overview on where that was at that point sure. in history.
1: Well, there, it, it, the best circumstantial evidence suggests that That syphilis, um, appeared in the modern world, as we might say, in Western Europe, um, right after the second voyage, Columbus's second voyage, he returned to Italy because there's an outbreak that happens immediately and it begins to spread all over Europe in an incredibly virulent form as diseases do to which people do not have immunities. We know this from the, you know, the death of something like. 80% 80% of Native Americans in the Americas in the first hundred years of European colonization when Indians had no immunities to smallpox and tuberculosis and measles and other diseases that the Europeans brought. There might have been a form of syphilis in Europe earlier called spiral of the syphilis in, in Europe many, many years before, but it had pretty much died out. And so its first manifestations in 1495 and for several decades thereafter were horrific. And you won't be surprised to find out that every country that, um, in which syphilis broke out and definitely in a pan- as a pandemic blank called it by the name of their enemy country. <laughs> So in Spain it was the French disease in England, it was the Spanish disease in Germany, it was the Italian disease. By the time Mabel by the time Mabel was born in eighteen seventy nine, syphilis is still of epidemic proportions. And there were many different kinds of treatments. In fact there's a I believe that in Paris there's a syphilis museum that has all of the different strange Ablutions that people used before penicillin became available in 1946, which was the first um, which was the first medicine that ever really killed this sp- the spirochete that causes syphilis. So in the late 19th century, people would or- were ex- basically went- were exposed to mercury, went- were bathed in mercury vapors, highly toxic. Mabel's second husband, Edwin, went for mercury treatments um, in Switzerland while they were married. Uh, at the turn of the century, doctors who were called venereologists in the early 20th century um, made claims that in urban areas like New York City, one doctor claimed 80% of the men had gonorrhea and between 7 and 15% had syphilis. And Nagrit Sanger used these same statistics when she wrote the first pamphlet on what Every Girl Should Know, which was banned by the post office for being obscene, not because it talked about contraception, but because it talked about, it named syphilis and gonorrhea. Alan Brandt, who's um, a social historian at Harvard, who's written the best book on the history of VD in the U.S., says there are, there, it's impossible to get good statistics because as with AIDS, people did not write, at least on the death certificates of middle and upper class people, that they had died of syphilis. You might remember in the early days of AIDS, people were often said to have died of pneumonia.
0: Right.
1: So it, it's impossible to get good statistics, but he suggested to me in a phone conversation that maybe somewhere between 10 and 50% of men in the late 19th, early 20th century in the U.S. had gonorrhea or syphilis, with, with gonorrhea being perhaps four times more prevalent and less lethal, although it did tremendous damage to women's reproductive organs. And doctors believed um, in the early 20th century that half the sterility in women was due to gonorrhea. Uh, Thanks.
0: So I write down questions as I'm reading, and my next question was, how did she wind up in therapy? And then the very next sentence after I wrote that down in the book was, quote, her pattern of having sexual relations with and marrying men who had venereal disease while continuing to live in morbid dread of infection, which pretty much... Summarize why you would be having difficulty. <laughs> yes.
1: I would say that the hardest question for me to get my mind around was how you would explain this oxymoron, that you know, paradox, that here's the woman who writes in her, one of her suppressed memoirs that she's lived since childhood with the dread of suffering from the sins of the fathers, which was the Victorian euphemism. Uh, that described that the way in which they believed fathers would tra- could transmit through mothers syphilis unto the second, third generation, because from the second commandment in Genesis of the mm-hmm. Ten Commandments, I mean, yeah, in Exodus, sorry. And um, she grew up with that belief. It's not true. Mothers can transmit congenital syphilis, and babies can be born with horrible defects and blo- mm-hmm. born dead and born blind and deaf and all kinds of other things, and this we see replicated in some of the art of the late 19th, early 20th century, and in the literature. But the fact that she claims to have known that her second husband had syphilis, that she very likely married her third husband, Marie Stern, after finding out he had syphilis, which was discovered apparently through psychoanalysis. Uh, I, I can't prove that, but they were married very late and when he went her husband went off to Taos fairly soon after they were married in 1917 and then I can't know whether she whether Tony infected her before or after they got married it could have been either but the fact she lived with these men uh, married these men uh, you have to say what would have possessed someone who lived as many women did she was hardly alone in this Mm -hmm. with the terror of Suffering, being you know afflicted with the disease, and yet she keeps marrying men who end up having it, and she either knows or doesn't know beforehand. And the only the only conclusion or interpretation that I could come to is that the Victorian Mabel, in some sense, who wrote a lot about being fated to suffer the sins of the fathers, was she doomed? Was she was doomed to suffer? Um, was the Mabel who, in some sense, believed that this was? Punishment that she somehow deserved or had to live with or endure. Uh, and the irony of her being an advocate of free love and a leading symbol in France and, and the United States of the new woman, the free woman, the sexually liberated woman is that women put themselves in even greater danger um, by not being monogamous, though monogamy didn't necessarily protect them either since husbands were never supposed to tell their wives if they were syphilitic because it might endanger the Anglo-Saxon birth rate, which already was too low, according to many doctors and Teddy Roosevelt, among others. So I have to see this as, in some ways, part part of the inconsistency and the incongruity of a non-integrated person who believed on the one hand, because she was a devout Freudian, that sex was, you know, the essence of women's identity, her sexuality, and on the other hand, believed that she inherited this doom from her father's generation that that she was predestined to inherit. And in fact, your question about therapy is really interesting in this regard, because Mabel clearly sought therapy as a way out of this, pre, this Victorian belief in, in heredity. Mm-hmm. That, you know, her father clearly was a deeply depressed man um, who died very young and might, in, indeed, the symptoms he suffered from, as she describes them, sound like tertiary, the last stage of syphilis. And therapy promised, I mean, Freud's talking cure promised. But if you could get, you know, if you could face your horrible childhood disabilities and where you had your various, where you had your arrested development and get through all of this through the talking cure, you might be able to come out the other end, a healed human being. and. She went into Christian science for exactly the same reason, and she went into occult therapy for exactly the same reason, and she did all of these at the same time because she didn't know which of them were going to work.
0: So what is the importance of the unpublished memoirs? What did they add to her biography and reveal about her times?
1: Well, from my point of view, for one thing, they um, bring to light some of the extraordinarily difficult horrific issues that women faced around issues of sexuality in the late 19th and early 20th century the fact that the most progressive doctors thought that women shouldn't know about syphilis the fact that sexologists like Havelock Ellis were advocating free love as long as women lied lay passive before the you know all phallic and all wonderful male genius they were amusing um that we know some of this because a lot has been written about late 19th and early 20th century sexuality, but I feel that Mabel's struggles and the contradictions and conflicts that she faced around her sexual identity and around the issues of venereal disease and manic depression just bring to the fore a lot of information that people, well, let's put it this way, that I would say the general public doesn't know and doesn't read about because even though this book obviously is scholarly I have never written for just an academic audience and I, I have found people have just been floored by the information in the book and by what Mabel went through and I tell them that when I was a young healthy young thing I knew that she had syphilis at least I knew Tony infected her I knew she was manic depressive and I couldn't cared less as her biographer it just didn't interest me, even though it was a major part, both of these. I mean, I didn't know very much about the syphilis, but I certainly knew about the manic depression. Reading the case notes, studying lots, reading lots of books on depression and manic depression. I have and being discovering all of this later in my life when I've got, you know, my own little... My own issues, you know, I'm not the young thing that was no medical problems. I was, but I started working on her, has made me much more sympathetic, Mm. and I feel as though I've brought. People are just fascinated, not just by how her story reveals these issues around women's rights and women's equality and women's sexuality in this time period, but also the connection to um, the impact that venereal disease had on modern art and literature. And that just wows people. And I couldn't put in the book what I do in my lectures, which is to show Um, Images from all of the famous pieces of popular culture, like um, Phantom of the Opera and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and um, Dracula, which are inflected with syphilis, these Mm -hmm. stories. I mean, so when I do my lectures, the audience is like gasping as these images come on the screen because this is not part of how we understand these texts. And very few people have seen... For example, the extraordinarily powerful um, paintings by Edvard Munch called Inheritance, which is, you know, the Victorian notion that the baby, a child inherits syphilis from the mother, in which in middle class there are two different paintings, one middle class, one working class mother, holding what doctors called syphilitic runts in their lap, and they look like remnants from Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. So people are really shocked by the uh, First of all, by the prevalence of venereal disease, it was, it was a pandemic in the, in Europe and, and the United States, and just they had no idea. I mean, I think most people who don 't read about this material think of syphilis as a problem of prostitutes or really poor people or whatever not not something that infected and inflexed um, modern European and American cultures in a really profound way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So we've talked about the role of therapy in her life. Can you discuss more the role of writing in her life and then tie those two together of how she used therapy to write, which we hit upon a little bit?
1: But. Well, I always knew that writing, you know, her, she always tried to get out of writing memoirs. She would write to her shrink a, a. role, the man who was who, her psychiatrist, for most of her life, even though much of it was by correspondence after she moved to New Mexico, that she would like to write something other than autobiography. And she was really, though she wrote novels and a couple of screenplays, they're pretty awful. (laughs) And it seems to me, I claim in my new book that writing is the only therapy that kept her alive. It's what, I mean, it may be somewhat dramatic to say that, but her last doctor, who was not a psychiatrist, but who was a phenomenal general practitioner, I guess he was an internist, um, Dr. Hausner, kept saying to her every time she had a life crisis with Tony, who was always unfaithful to her, at least until the late 1940s, don't divorce him, don't do this, don't do that, write another memoir. And he really understood, and even her first, thera- second therapist, A.A. Brill, did, that writing her memoirs, was writing was a way for her to therapeutically construct an explanation for who she was and what she was and really kept her when she was writing she was mentally stable from what I can tell it is when she finished a writing project that she would often fall into horrific depression mm-hmm. and so I think writing was clearly a, a lifeline for her mentally and emotionally you know and, and it's not she's not alone in that But she was, particularly in her published memoirs, she constructed herself that was both true to what I know of her from many other different sources and also utopian and idealistic in her presentation of her relationship with Tony, which she very significantly, and I, I didn't know this until I'd read all the other memoirs, and her final page, page 1600, is she sent her third husband back to New York and she and Tony are talking about making a new life together, and they are going to have sexual intercourse purportedly for the first time. But the, the, the last memoir, her most popular memoir, Edge of Chaos Desert, An Escaped Reality, ends before they have sexual intercourse. And her relationships with men were always on a much better keel before she had sex with them. As soon as she had sex with them, it was just storm and drung forever. And part of it is that she lost herself to every one of the men that she was in love with, not her second husband because I don't think she really loved him, or her first, whom she didn't, clearly didn't love. But the writing is what was what enabled her, along with the many, many creative endeavors that she was engaged in—the Armory Show and, you know, bringing all kinds of interesting writers and artists like Stakowski and Lawrence and Mary Austin and um, Ansel Adams. To you know, to kind of work together and spark creativity off one another at her home in Taos. But the writing, I think, was crucial to her mental health. I I don't know that she would have survived without it.
0: What do you see as her legacy? Her legacy is, uh, I think, a
1: complicated one. Um, I've been writing recently, and I just did an article uh, last fall for the Art State Arts Magazine El Palacio on the blessings and curses of Anglo-cultural patronage of Native American and Hispano arts. And I start the article off with a wonderful passage from one of Mabel's suppressed memoirs, in which he tells this hilarious story of the Hispanos of northern New Mexico inventing a legend about her, very similar to the Johnny Appleseed legend, <laughs> and except that it has a downside. And the legend was that Mabel had brought sunflowers from New York State to Taos that had invaded their agriculture and was ruining their crops. And uh, the title of the article is, And La Bruja, which is Spanish for the witch, brought the sunflowers, and I use it as a kind of metaphor for, you know, sunflowers are beautiful, we love them, they grow in huge abundance here in late summer, they are are inspiringly gorgeous, but if they invade your crops, it isn't a great thing. And Anglo patronage, including her own patronage and romanticization of Pueblo Indians, um, much less so the Mexicans and Hispanos that she wrote about in much more often disparaging terms... Um, is a double-edged sword. I mean, the modern Native American rights movement, activism for protection of Native American religions and lands, really, you know, part of that crusade served at the Mabel Dodge Lujan House when she brought John Collier out there. Uh, She brought many benefits to the Pueblos. She wrote, in some ways, about uh, Native spirituality, in in terms not dissimilar from some Native American writers, uh, Pollock and Allen, for example. But patronage is always patronizing, and the desire for the Anglos like Mabel to um, construct Indians as living in a pristine, timeless world and not acknowledge in their public writings the poverty and the, the intra-ethnic race um, problems among and between Anglos, Hispanos and Indians um, is, is deeply problematic. Mm-hmm. So the legacy is very complicated. Um, the home that she built is still a living, wonderful place where people come for B and B and for writing workshops and photography workshops. And there is such a sense of peace and creativity and calm there. I mean, I've talked to hundreds of people in the last four years who stayed at her house, and who just feel re-energized by it. It's wonderful it's funky it's weird it isn't pretentious it's not a mansion but it's a great creative space and peop- she's remembered both with loathing and love and towels by different members of the community uh and as a controversial figure and i guess that's part of the reason i've always been drawn to really messy people <laughs> like mabel and mark twain who i taught a course on for 35 years I <laughs> just I like messy people who you can't parse easily. <laughs> As a biographer, to me, that is a wonderful
0: challenge. <laughs> so you've been working with her for 35 years. How has your view of her changed over that time?
1: Well, I would say um, I've, I always have felt that being an outsider allowed me to be dispassionate about her, which nobody I know in New Mexico is. I mean, I still meet people when I give talks here and I give tons of lectures here on her, and there seems to be an undying interest in her. It doesn't matter how many times I've talked about her. There are always groupies. I mean, I'll give you a wonderful example sort of 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 that, of where I sort of learned about this the first time and where I've come. The first big public lecture I gave in um, here in New Mexico was in Albuquerque, and I was part of a wonderful project uh, that became a book called The Desert Is No Lady about Anglo-Hispano and Native American responses to New Mexico landscapes in several different media. And we had a public symposium, and I spoke on Mabel and two other friends, uh, Anglo-women friends, one was a poet and one a writer, uh, a non-fiction and fiction writer. And after I finished my t- my lecture... A woman jumped out of her seat in the audience, about 200 people in this auditorium, and said, Mabel Dodge Luhan was nothing but a rich bitch who came in here and stole our culture. And then before I could even, like, take a breath, another woman stood up and faced her and said, Mabel Dodge Lujan's writings brought me here. That is the reason I moved to New Mexico. How can you talk about her like that? And I just wow. slowly wanted to die, you know, <laughs> crawl, crawl <laughs> off the stage and die. <laughs> And it was the first time, I mean, I had gotten inklings of it from some of my colleagues on this project. Um, and I. it was sort of like, whoa. And at one point, somebody was complaining that I'd come there from Massachusetts, another cultural imperialist, to write about their people and what was I doing at this conference. It was just one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And, you know, one of the things that's happened, and this, is, uh, this brings me to the other end of my life, there was there's a wonderful anthropologist, Sylvia Rodriguez, who grew up um, in Taos and certainly knew about Mabel and wrote vituperatively of her and the Taos Art Colony. And when we first met each other in the late 70s, early 80s, we were like, you know, on opposite sides of the boxing ring. <laughs> and Sylvia just gave a talk. She lives in the same community where I'm retired. She's retired also from UNM. And she just recently gave a talk on uh, some of the Taos painters and their use of their Indian and, and Hispano subjects. And it just blew my mind, and she read my syphilis book. She interviewed me on the radio, a public radio station where she works in Taos. She loves the book. She and I have come to almost exactly the same place in over 38 years. Wow. It is apt, we started from Antipodes, and we have come... I mean, I just embraced her after her talk, and I said, Sylvia, because she said, you know, some of the people who were subjects of these paintings, for whatever the problematics are, they were very proud to be in these paintings, you know? They weren't necessarily angry that they were painted like this. And it it was, for Sylvia to say that, it was just incredible. And I had to learn how to be way more sensitive Mm. to the issues of what it meant for anybody, myself included, and anglo to come, and I've written about many of them at this point, from the outside. And I've always I've tried to be in my later years a kind of mediator between um, the radical scholarly community that, you know, wants to see wants to see people like Mabel as only as cultural imperialists. Mm-hmm. And there's been at least I don't know how many books and articles have been written on this. And the scholars who are much more nuanced, and I put myself in that category, who are, try to see them in the time they lived.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And in the time, for the time they lived, they were light years more progressive than 99% of their fellow Anglo-Americans right. for all of the racialization and romanticization they did of indigenous groups. Mm-hmm. So I feel I'm in a much more complex and interesting space now many years later I'm much more empathetic to Mabel I don't excuse any of the terrible things she did to certain people in her depressive phases because she was manic depressive but I feel like I understand much more profoundly and much more empathetically what drove her in both to do both wonderful things and appalling things in her life.
0: Any idea what you're going to be writing about next?
1: Well, I'm now working with a good friend of mine who's an independent curator on an exhibition called Mabel Dodge Lujan and Company that we've started... 35 years ago and dropped. Wow! And you know we're hoping it's a huge endeavor. So that what I'm working on now is working with the Harwood Museum in Taos and the museum. I'll be going out to Buffalo to work with the um, a museum in Buffalo. Neither Buffalo, where Mabel was born, nor Taos has ever done anything in any of the museums about her, wow, which is quite astonishing. Yeah. And, you know, we have to raise a lot of money, and we're trying to do this in a very interesting and provocative way with lots of material culture and interactive videos and readings and theater performances. (laughs) So it's like one of Mabel's utopian projects. How cool. That sounds fascinating.
0: (laughs) I hope it will come to be. (laughs) Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being with us on New Books and Biography today. My pleasure, Elaine. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I've been talking today with Lois Rednick about her new book entitled The Suppressed Memoirs of Mabel Dodge Luhan, Sex, Syphilis and Psychoanalysis in the Making of Modern American Culture, which is now out in hardback. I'm Oline Eaton, this is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.